this section, so we're in the last section of the book of Judges. And so if you're new, we've been going all the way through it and we're all the way to 19 and we're going to finish today. So this is kind of the finale and uh, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit because we've got three chapters here. All right. Um, and I think the thing that's really helpful for us to understand and know is the book of Judges, you know, once again, it sits in this unique space, right? Joshua has passed away. The people of Israel have gone into the promised land. And they, they start going into this pattern, this cycle of, of turning away from the Lord and adopting uh, the pagan practices, the idolatry of the people uh, and the nations that surround them, as opposed to driving those people out. And, and so they continue to fall into this cycle. And, and there hasn't been a king yet. And, and so the people are in this in-between space. And, and we've walked through it from kind of this thousand foot view, like, like the book of Judges, uh, you know, especially the, the first um, main part really allows us to look down and go, okay, things are pretty jacked up. And so God sends a judge and that continues to happen. But these last chapters here, uh, as we began last week and we finished today, these last chapters, what they do is, is reveal what is going on on the ground. And it's not in chronological order anymore, but it's, it's, it's taking us into the very setting, the scene of, of the dysfunction and, and, the, and the horror, to be honest, that was going on uh, within the people group, okay? Uh, within relationships. So it's, 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 it's helping us to see just how far gone uh, the people of God actually are. And the verses that we're going to be looking at today, the violence in this uh, and the graphic nature of it is, is deeply disturbing, okay? So I just want to warn you with that. But I think oftentimes, I know as a pastor, I would much rather not teach on these things. But I also know from connecting with so many of you that guess what? You guys, especially those of you that are brand new to God, brand new to faith, you don't know where to turn. And so you just open your Bible and you start reading, don't you? And you may just happen to go right into Judges chapter 19, 20, and 21. And guess what? It's about that time that people say, I want nothing to do with God, right? Or we believe that God is endorsing this. And so this is important for us to, to understand and really see what God is doing here. So Judges chapter 19, let's look at verses one through three. It says this. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Okay, so last week we were introduced to a Levite. Now, the Levites were, were individuals who, uh, based upon their tribe, were, were set aside by God to serve the priests and to minister to the people. And part of the tithe that went to the temple uh, paid for their, essentially their salaries to, to be able to do this. And so the Levites are, are set aside workers of God uh, for the people of God. And, and once again, we were introduced to a Levite who doesn't seem to be aligning with the calling. 
First and foremost, we see that he has a concubine. Now, uh, a concubine uh, was, uh, was a second-class wife. Uh, uh, oftentimes, if their, if their wife uh, could not have a child, they would go and just find someone else uh, and make them almost like this, this concubine, this second-tier wife, to help continue uh, their family, right? And, and so this, this was something that was done and that was practiced in these pagan cultures in this society uh, where they would take on and add to uh, their marriage. And I think the thing that's important for us to understand is when they did that, it brought this dynamic that was very opposed to the will of God, which uh, essentially made this husband, uh, his role also husband and a master, which is nothing that God had designed. God makes it very clear. He is against multiple wives. All right. So if anybody ever says, well, God's a polygamist, like, no. Like God is, is against that. He made it very clear in Genesis 2, uh, marriage is between one man and one woman. And, 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 but what we see is the society uh, that, that we're entering into here and the dysfunction in it, it became normalized uh, for polygamy to happen. And what the Bible shows us is that every time it happens, it brings about destruction. Every time. And so from Abraham all the way on, it's not endorsing this, it's showing, it's revealing the destruction that happens in Solomon's life. Same thing, destruction that happens. Uh, I did a wedding uh, yesterday, uh, and it was a beautiful wedding. And one of the uh, amazing moments when you're doing a ceremony, because as a pastor, honestly, you kind of feel like this odd person in the middle, and they're just like, you know? And you're just like, you know, cool down, guys. And, you know, and, and so, but what, what fuels that moment? What fuels that moment is exclusivity, isn't it? It's exclusivity. It's just me, it's just you, and we're choosing to love each other and each other alone. And, uh, and we see that that is God's design. And so this Levite, a man of God, set apart by God to be an example, a leader to teach the ways of God, we see even he falling into what was socially acceptable at the time. And you guys, the book of Judges right here is letting us know that even the very people that are set aside to be the leaders of God, if they're going to fall into this, you and I can fall into this as well. It just may look differently, right? And, and so uh, he's caught up in this pagan culture, this practice. And so this, this concubine of his, this wife, she commits adultery and she leaves him and returns to her father's house. And what we read is that he waits four months uh, before he goes to her father's house in order to persuade her to return. Now, when he goes to her father's house, her father greets him, is, is excited. And, and when you look at the verses, he's way over the top. It's like, it's like too much, back off. And, and, he's just, and he's just trying to win over uh, this, uh, this Levite. And, and so he's there and he's like, here's some drinks. Let's eat, let's drink, let's hang out. And, and, he, and he actually delays him from leaving for five days, we read. And then finally, the Levite's like, hey, I'm going to take, take my concubine, and I'm going to go. And we wonder, why was that father uh, like so adamant about welcoming this Levite into his home? And you guys, part of it that we need to just understand culturally is the penalty for what she did uh, could ultimately be death, and it was disgrace for the family. So he's trying to ensure that this Levite is on okay terms and is not going to press charges. 
And so after five days, the, the Levite uh, takes his concubine wife to go and to travel back home. And uh, as they are traveling away, they, they're going uh, towards, it says, Jebus, which is actually Jerusalem, but it was occupied at this time by the Jebusites, okay? So it wasn't under the occupation of the Israelites. And so as they approach that city at that time, um, one of the servants uh, tells the Levite, let's stop here, it's getting late. He says, no, we're not gonna stay here. This is unsafe, essentially. These are not our people. And so he says, let's keep going to Gibeah or Ramah, which is in the tribe of Benjamin. And so they continue on. And then in verses 14 and 15, this is what it says. Uh, it says, so they passed on and went their way and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Okay, so, the, so it's evening, the sun is uh, setting and they reach uh, one of the places they wanted to get to, which, would, which was Gibeah, because they felt safe there. Now, immediately there's some concerning signs when they arrive into the city. The first is, no one offers to host them. Now, hospitality was a big thing. It was called uh, by the people of God to be a practice that they engaged in. And so the fact that nobody invites them in or welcomes them into their home to stay the night is uh, a, a, a warning flag that something is wrong here. Something is off with this town. But then there's this old Ephraimite, and he welcomes him. And he says, you can totally, you can stay at my house. I'd love for you to stay with me. But verse 20 hints that there's something dangerous in this town. In verse 20, it says, and the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. Okay, so, so what he's saying is, whatever you do, I want you to stay with me. Do not stay in the square of the city. Do not stay here. Now we're left going, well, why? I mean, this is, this is a city, uh, the, the people of God, right? They, they, they should worship the Lord. Uh, they, they should be completely safe. Well, then we get to verse 22, and this is when things get really, really difficult. It says, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city Worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his house. And when he entered his house, he took a knife 
Taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. Man, absolutely horrific, a moment of shame, a time of shame in the history of Israel. Not only is this absolutely um, beyond description horrible today, but it was for them as well. And, and verse 22 tells us that some of the wicked men of the city, they, 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 they shouted, they go to the guy's, uh, the old man's house, and they say, hey, bring out the man who came to your house because we, we want to have sex with him. The owner pleads with them not to act wickedly, saying, this man's my guest. Stop, you cannot do this. This is, this is awful. This is a vile thing. And then the old man does something that I can't even begin to comprehend uh, or understand. He then offers them his daughter. He offers them his daughter. And he offers them the Levite's concubine. In seeking to protect this man, this Levite, his house guest, he offers two women up to be raped. And, and, and we read that and we just pause and go, what in the world? Why? Why would he do such a thing? You guys, because he is, once again, he has fallen right along the line of, of just the, um, the way culture was working, which was in opposition to the will of God. He sees uh, women as uh, a piece of property uh, less valuable than a man and, and, and so he, his view of women uh, was, 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 the, was literally the view held by the surrounding cultures. And then what we see, it's adopted by the very men of God, the men of Israel. How in the world could they adopt that practice, that view uh, towards women, when, when clearly in the creation account uh, defined and, and dictated by God, we see men and women created equally in the image of God. They are image bearers. They, they, they are equal before the Lord. Amen? amen? You better say amen to that or we got problems, right? <laughs> and you got problems at home. So... Uh, like, like that, that's, it's, it's clear. It's not like a debate. It's not like anything. And yet we see uh, the, these, these men literally look uh, at them like they're this piece of property. It absolutely just breaks uh, your, your heart and, and it breaks and it grieves the heart of God. And so the Levite then, he goes, here, here, here is my wife, my concubine, here, here. And he hands her over to them to be raped and abused all throughout the night. These are God's people, right? Like you can't avoid this. Like, like you want to you just like separate it from anything that has to do with God. And yet the book of Judges is, is letting us know these are the very people of God. These are the people that uh, have, have, have experienced the exodus out uh, of Egypt. They've been supernaturally protected, guarded, uh, miraculously provided for. They've been given these judges, all of these things God has done on their behalf. And he says, you're going to be my people. And, and, and all of a sudden, this like this? Right? It's like this, man, it's this, it's this warning for us that we just can't get around. As we think, oh, I, I, man, I'm, 
I'm a Christian. I'm above these things. No, it's showing us these are the very people of God that sink to this level. Now, I cannot comprehend a man sacrificing his wife to save himself. Because I'll tell you what, the calling for a husband is to model and reflect Christ, which is what he was to give his life for her. And not only did he hand her out there for, for a, a, a night that filled with unspeakable acts, but he was able to lie down and go to sleep. And at dawn, she's set free, right? No one wants anyone to know this happened. At dawn, she's set free. She returns to the house and she fell at the door. This Levite, this, this guy that's supposed to represent God, he's supposed to be a spiritual leader. He gets up and let's, let's go. Like nothing happened. Let's go on our way. Let's, let's get home. And he goes and he, what? He opens the door and there she is. Laying there in the doorway of the house. And he simply just speaks to her and just says, get up. We have to get going. There's no answer though, is there? She was dead. She didn't make it. And he loads her body on his donkey and he heads home. And after he gets home, he takes her body and he just desecrates it, cutting it into 12 pieces and sending it out to the tribes. Once again, this is, this is a Levite. And, and we read this and we just go, Why? Why? Why would you do that? And what we see him acting on right now is he wants vengeance, doesn't he? He wants vengeance on the men who did this. And and you guys, there were other ways he could have gone about getting vengeance or or getting justice, I should say. Uh, There was a temple, there was a route, there was a law, there was was ways to do things in a way that honored God. And yet this guy uh, goes and he does this unspeakable act uh, because he wants vengeance. He wants to rile up all of the tribes. He wants uh, destruction to come about. And and, and the people are absolutely horrified. We read that that nothing, they'd ever seen anything like this. Uh, Nothing had been done uh, or, or, or seen since Egypt that even was close to what they're experiencing here. And so Israel is, is unified in their, their heart as they, as they see how awful the situation is. And, and they actually come together. Uh, in chapter 20, it says, then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah and the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubine to spend the night and the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage, outrage in Israel. 
Behold, you, people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Okay, so they've all assembled together at Mizpah, and, and Israel is, is united in this, right? Now, here is what's um, causing us to pause. Here's what's off here. They're, they're not going to God, are they? Right, they're not going to God. They're not, they're not going to a judge. But they're listening to and basing their authority for what they're going to do next off of a compromised Levite. And also, it makes us aware that, hey, the tribe of Benjamin also knows that this is taking place. So they know that there's this rally happening. And, and then we read the Levite's account of what happened. And the Levite, if you, if you read that, you go, oh, man, this guy's smooth. So he's editing out bits and pieces. He's editing out uh, these little things where he, you know, he was supposed to protect, did not protect, uh, where he sent her out uh, saying, oh, they wanted to kill me. No, they wanted to rape him. They didn't want to kill him. And, and he's editing things out uh, in a way that, that causes them to be unified in their um, allegiance to kill these people, to attack them. And, 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 and it's interesting, isn't it, how... Oftentimes, the, the people that are the ones crying out for justice are, are the people that are hiding certain facts. I, I, I think of my, my kids, and they're at this age now. I got three boys, and I mean, they just fight, right? I mean, that's, that's the stage of life uh, we're in. They don't just always fight, but, but they do sometimes, you know? Um, and the other day, one came in and just just mad, just telling me his younger brother just punched him in the face. And I said, well, let me see your face. And I go, okay, I don't really see anything. Was it a closed fist? Was it open-handed? And uh, so he's describing me the punch. And then lo and behold, his brother, who apparently just decked him, but there's no marks, came in and says the other side of the story. And so I look at the one who's this victim of being absolutely just punched in the face. And I said, is that true? Ah, uh, maybe, but not really, right? <laughs> well, I, uh, he looked at me funny, like, okay. And, and it's so interesting how, how this Levite paints this story in such a way to where he's relieved of any blame, right? He's relieved of anything. He didn't, you know, and, 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 and he literally doesn't bring up at all that he sacrificed her. He gave her over. He did not defend her. He didn't approach. He didn't stand at the door. What did he do? He threw out his wife there to him. And also Deuteronomy 17 and 19 is very clear uh, that, that by the law of Israel, they're not, they're not allowed to uh, put to death someone except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So uh, there should have been more witnesses to verify what uh, happened. And so Israel is in a straight reactionary space right now. They are mad. They are unified. They want vengeance. And so verses 12 through 17, this is what we read. It says, and the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. 
Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Yep, yep. They were the special forces for all of us left-handers out there. Because uh, look what it says next, all right? This is the Bible. This isn't me. This isn't my opinion. It just says, everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Yep. And the men... Of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Now, now, ultimately, we have to just mourn this, that this is happening. But what we see is Israel first, they actually, they send men to Benjamin, and the tribe of Benjamin, and they say, listen, we need these, these individuals that, that did this. We want to hold them responsible. We want to remove the evil from Israel. But the tribe of Benjamin refuses. And not only do they refuse to listen, but they actually unite to fight against the rest of Israel. Summoning 26,700 special forces soldiers uh, to face 400,000 Israelites. And, and so we just look at this and we go, man, why tribe of Benjamin? Uh, why are you refusing to listen, to respond? See, they were refusing to allow anybody from the outside to critique or to call out anything that was going on on the inside. And you guys, we're tempted to do the same, aren't we? Where does that come from? It comes from pride, doesn't it? Pride is that thing that is always at work against the will of God in your life. And pride is that thing that says, you're okay, don't listen to them. They don't know you. They're just judging you. They're holding on to this against you. You're the one in the right. Pride by its nature continues to reaffirm that you're in the right, when in reality, as a Jesus follower, we are always in dependence on Christ. And so pride flips the narrative for you. Pride says, no, you're good. Uh, you don't need to listen to them. You know what's best for you, and you're doing fine, right? Um, and, and, and it reinforces this narrative that takes you away from dependence on God and ultimately takes you away from being willing to listen to anybody who's trying to provide spiritual counsel into your life. And so they refuse, and, 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 and I just go, this is, this is awful. I mean, pride is so blinding, isn't it? It just blinds us to the will of God. And the other thing we see is how just sin just builds. You guys, uh, there's a reason we ask you and, and we end every gathering with this time of response and, and we plead with you to deal with if there's anything in your life that's going on between you and God. We don't ask you to deal with that and bring it before the Lord because we get like uh, a medal or something. Like, no, we want you to do that and go to the Lord with that because by the very nature of sin, Sin is not stagnant. It grows. It stacks upon itself. And here we are. Uh, literally, uh, this, this Levite has compromised. These evil men have done this horrific work to this woman. And now we see out of pride, the leaders of Benjamin say, we're not listening to you. And now we have civil war. So in verse 18, Israel inquired of God, who of us shall go first to fight? Now, what we notice is they're not asking for permission to fight. They're saying, who's going to go first? They'd already made up their mind. They know what they're supposed to do. 
And God, God responds. He says, Judah should go first. Now, when God's responding, God, God is not endorsing what all of this has happened. See, like, they're not going out to fight God's enemies. They're going out to fight the very people of God, aren't they? But what we see and, and reading and studying history, the Benjamites, they live in the hills, which favored them. It favored the defending force. And so the Israelites could only send in one or two tribes at most to go in to fight in this narrow space that was defended by them. And, uh, and so as, as Israel goes in to attack, two days in a row, Benjamin defeats them. Two days in a row. And, 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 and so then at the end, after, after two days of this, um, the, the nation of Israel, they are just, man, they're weeping, they're fasting, they're going to the Lord. And now they're even asking, should we fight against Benjamin, our brother? And, and, and the Lord says, you guys go out tomorrow. I'm going to give them into your hands tomorrow. This is what you guys have wanted. This is going to end, this is going to end bad. And so this time Israel goes out and they set up an ambush. They draw out the tribe of Benjamin to fight. As they're doing that, another group sneaks around, destroys, burns, kills everybody in their city. And as they draw them out, they then sandwich them in and destroy them. The people of God slaughtering the people of God. And soon all but 600 men of the tribe of Benjamin are destroyed and the victory's complete, but the slaughter isn't. We read in verse 48, it says, and the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Every man, woman, and child, and animal, they just they slaughtered them. You guys, this is not justice. This is genocide. This is, this is not just, this is the work of, of a bitterness, isn't it? This is the overflow of unchecked bitterness. Because you guys, what bitterness does, bitterness takes you way beyond any ability to see justice. See, see, when bitterness is allowed to form and grow in your heart and in your life, that's why I always tell people, if, you, oh, if you're dealing with bitterness, you, you need to deal with it right now because bitterness is the very thing that causes you to want to hurt somebody else. Bitterness is the thing unchecked that says, I want to hurt you with what I say about you or what I say to you. It's, it's the thing that drives us to physically hurt somebody else. And, and, and so bitterness unchecked turns into vindictiveness and it causes a response to where no longer am I trying to reach justice, compromise. I am trying to hurt you. And we see that they are so beyond anything that God has desired for the very people of God. And so this unchecked uh, bitterness uh, leads them into this horrifying slaughter that we can't even comprehend. And you guys, what so many of us need to know is if you have bitterness, it needs to be uprooted. And the only thing that can uproot that bitterness, that resentment is forgiveness. It's forgiveness. And here's the first thing you have to understand. And I know it's inconvenient and it's difficult. But the first thing you have to realize about forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness God calls us to, is forgiveness is given first before it's felt. Oh, we don't like that, right? 
In other words, I am called to forgive you before I feel like forgiving you. I'm called by God to put my agenda, my hurts aside, and I'm called to choose to forgive you. And guys, I, I'll tell you what, I have, I've had to do this in my life. And, 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 and for certain individuals, they're not in this room, so you're safe, but for certain individuals, the feelings still aren't there. Like I wake up and I'm still like, yeah, you know? But I have to make a choice to forgive them. And, and part of making that choice means I'm not going to continue to bring this up to them anymore. I'm not going to continue to dwell on it anymore. Now, are you going to think, oh, that person hurt me? You're going to still think that, right? But I have a choice of what I do with that thought. I have a choice to entertain it, uh, to go down the road with it, or I have a choice to release it, don't I? Uh, to the Lord. And so uh, forgiveness in and of its source first and foremost, is a decision that I need to do before I feel like forgiving. It's a promise to not continue to bring it up. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a promise to not dwell on that hurt, that pain. And what we ultimately have to realize is forgiveness is only possible. This kind of forgiveness is only possible because of God's forgiveness to you and I through Christ. Right? I mean, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. It, it, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. It doesn't get worse than that, does it? Like, there is nothing worse than I'm dead in my trespasses. Where do you go from there? He says, right? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? So, so, so when, I, when I approach this bitterness and when bitterness tries to attack and God calls me out of that, he calls me to this forgiveness, my, my job is not to qualify whether they deserve my forgiveness or not. My role in that moment is to reflect on the forgiveness that was offered to me when I was dead in my trespasses and to reflect and remember the amazing move initiated by God to send his one and only son to the cross to pick me up out of that dead in my trespasses place to be alive, to be resurrected, to be brought back to life, old made, new, made in the image of God. Walking, completely transformed to a living hope. And only a perspective of that can give me the perspective I need to forgive because you guys think of the depth of what was going on here. It's, it's absolutely awful. And so we, uh, when we think about what is going on here, nobody, the Levite, the, the Israelites, the Benjamites, like none of them are, are practicing at all what God has called us to do in response to these conflicts that will happen. And you know what? I'm shocked and it breaks my heart, honestly, how many times uh, I connect with Christians and I'm like, my goodness, like you're bitter. Like, my goodness, you're, you're, you are holding on to this against them. They're another brother or sister in Christ. And it almost feels like you're, you're wanting to be upset with them. You've been waiting for this moment. And, and what's crazy is, is I, I'm shocked at how often we don't want to even pursue the truth. We don't want to even pursue this, this forgiveness. Um, and, and, and I think what was so hurtful about it is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
You guys, one of the best questions that you can ask, and we stopped asking it, is this, can you help me understand? That will change your life in conflict. Can you help me understand, especially when it's your brothers and sisters in Christ? Can you help me understand? I want to understand. See, Benjamin loses and Israel loses because Benjamin loses. Are you tracking with that? Right? Like nobody wins when God's people are at war with each other. Nobody wins. And so in in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, here we are. This has just gone on. 600 people left, 600 men from the tribe of Benjamin. That's all that's left. And And it says this in chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day, the people rose early and built there an an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? (laughs) All right. So the men of Israel had taken this oath, okay? This was not a God-honoring oath. (laughs) It was this brash oath, right? They said, none of us are going to give our daughters to marry anybody from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, here's the issue with that. Well, This is a problem because they've just put to death all of the women in the tribe of Benjamin. And and, and so now they have 600 surviving men and they can't give them their daughters to marry because they made an oath. And, and, And so here they are, and you guys, this is absolutely insane, okay? Here they are and and they go to the Lord and they said in verse three, I mean, look at this, this is crazy. They said, Oh Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. God, why has this happened? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know how God does what he does. Because I'm just killing them all. <laughs> right? At that point, you are. Nope. We're done. I'm going to choose a new people. <laughs> like, are you kidding? So they go to the Lord. God, oh, God, why would you do this? We're your people. Why would you make it so a tribe now can't survive? Guys, they're the ones who did this. This was the result of their own decisions. This was the result of of them going, oh, we'll handle justice. We'll handle evil. We'll listen to who we want and we'll deliver it how we want. And and, and we just go, this is insane. Like how in the world can they do that? How in the world can they blame God when it was their actions that put them in this place in the first place? And guys, you know what? I'll tell you what, this is what's tough. How many times do I do that? Where I, I go to the Lord and I say, God, why? Why is this happening? 
why is this situation there? God, why is, is, is that person, what, what is going on there? Why is this? And, and so often, you guys, I am just like them. That conflict, that situation uh, that I feel slighted in, oftentimes is the result of a decision that I made that was outside of the will of God, and yet I'm holding God accountable to it. And some of us are mad at God right now, and we're blaming him. And what we're doing is just like what they were doing is we're refusing to self-reflect, aren't we? We're refusing to actually look internally and go, wait a second, maybe I've got something to do with this. It's just much easier to to blame God for the wrong in my life. And and you guys, if we don't self-reflect, guess what happens? We just continue to deflect and then I continue to repeat this cycle of destruction. And that's why this prayer, and I brought it up before in Psalm 139, 23, is so critical for you every day, every morning where it says, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Guys, what if we committed to that? What if we committed to praying that? God, search me. Oh my goodness. Well, we're afraid of what we'd find. We're afraid of what he would reveal, right? And what we also see here is as they're building another altar here to offer sacrifice, uh, we discover that they also made another oath, which was really foolish, that anyone who had failed to assemble uh, when they gathered everyone together to make a decision on what to do with these evil men, anyone, any tribe that failed to assemble, they would kill them. What a great decision. And so as they're sitting there, they go, oh, well, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they failed to assemble. And so since they failed to assemble, we're supposed to kill them. And then they went, aha, we figured out a solution to our problem. So what they do is they go and they murder all of these people and then they hijack all of the young virgin girls and they give those young virgin girls to the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, we fixed it. Oh, wait, but no, they didn't fix it. Oh, they've already slaughtered more people now and they're 200 wives short. So what do they do now? Well, they got to compound uh, their issue. They, ah, they got to fix it, right? In their own flesh. And so then they remember that, oh, there's this festival to the Lord that happens. It's not far from here. And so they remember that women will go out and they'll go dancing and many of them will be virgins. And so you know what they do? Guys, this is just sheer evil. Is to tell the tribe of Benjamin, hey, the last 200 of you go hide in the vineyards. And when you see these young girls, these virgins, you go and you take them and abduct them, and take them to be your wife. And that way, none of us have willingly given you our daughters. And we're going to say it's okay. This is beyond belief. This is beyond reason. This is beyond evil. And the tribe of Benjamin does this. And they go, and they snatch, and take these young girls, and they move on with their lives like nothing has happened. Absolute craziness. And you guys, maybe the most amazing aspect of this whole scene is the total ignorance of Israel toward their own sin. See how easy it can be for us to be ignorant of our own sinfulness and the harm that we're causing while at the same time feeling righteous. And so now we have these poor women dealt this hand by these leaders to accept this trauma and these new positions in life because Israel has said this is okay. And the writer of Judges closes 
and 25 by reminding us. He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They're without a king. And they decided we're going to do whatever we want. And so over and over again, here we are, church, and and we're confronted with this. This is a nation, a people group set aside by God who failed over and over to look to the Lord and to only obey the Lord, right? So, and and then each step that Israel takes to remove the evil, to solve the problem, it causes even bigger problems. And you guys, when we try to, to do all of these things without addressing the spiritual issue, because it's a spiritual issue here, what we do is we compound the problem. And they fail to address the real problem. The problem is at the core, they're refusing to bow down to the king. And you guys, the book of Judges, like no other book in the Old Testament, it challenges the church today. It challenges us to ask, who is our king? It challenges us to ask, who's the king of this church? Is it Jesus? Because we are so quick to blame so many things away, aren't we? Well, I acknowledge my need for a king who will rescue, rule, and change my life. And you guys, here's the other thing. You read this, and I don't know all of your stories. I know some of you have come from really rough backgrounds. I know some of you are probably in a rough spot today. But I will tell you this. God does not give up on these people. And I can tell you by the authority of Scripture, he has not given up on you. And that is an amazing takeaway from an awful section of Scripture. He's never given up on you. Maybe you've given up on you. Maybe other people have given up on you. He has not given up on you. And and, and so you guys, as we close, I I want us to ask these questions. Can we come together in a way that honors the king? Can we actually allow him to deliver the truth that we each need? Will we listen? Will we self-reflect? Will we say, search me, God, and know my heart? Or has there become this self-righteousness in me that's a lie when I actually hold it to the authority of uh, Scripture? Will I choose to forgive in light of Christ's forgiveness for me? Colossians 3.13 is so clear. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive.